You're tuning in to Missouri NEA Connects, a podcast to focus on all things Missouri education, from policy to practice, so that each of us can unite, inspire, and lead from where we are. We're happy you're here. We are at the end of session. It is officially over because it's done May 31st, correct? May 30th. May 30th. Okay. So we're officially done. Now what happens? So now what happens, so what what did just happen was that the legislature, um, they have stuff to do even after they're done debating the bills. And this year it was May 12th. It's the basically the second Friday after the first Monday in May, which always use, ends up in the like 12, 13, 14. I think it can be as late as the 19th of May. Mm-hmm. Whenever that ends, the Constitution says May 30th, they have to have completed like all of the paperwork. And the paperwork they mostly have to do is they have to figure out which bills passed both chambers in the same form. Uh, and that's those bills that are called truly agreed to. And if you've done collective bargaining, it's kind of like where you have an agreement that's been ratified by both the union and the governing board. It's kind of like that. It has to be okay. the same agreement ratified by both sides. In this case, the same language has to go through one chamber, has to go through the other chamber, if the other t- chamber just takes it up and passes it, then it's done. If they change it, then there's a p- process by which they negotiate how you know how do we reconcile the differences between the two chambers. And if they can get that done and, and before the bell rings, so to speak, on the last day of session, there's actually no bell, but before 6 p.m., then, then it's considered truly agreed to. All of those bills that get to that stage are then whichever chamber started the bill, so like say it's a House bill, the House has to go in and they have to do what's called printing a truly agreed to version of the bill. They'll do that for all of their House bills that get passed. The Senate will do the same thing for all of their Senate bills that got truly agreed to. Those get printed and then they have to have what's known as a technical session. So the ordinary members of the legislature don't have to show up. They can go about their business, but the presiding officers show up along with the staff and they have a scheduled technical session. What they have to do is they have to go into session, um, which doesn't require a quorum to do a technical session. Just have have to have at least somebody there who's in the body. And then the Speaker of the House will sign, while they're in a technical session, each of the House bills, send them over to the Senate, and the Senate pro tem will sign each of the Senate bills when they're in technical session, send them over to the House, and then they swap, and then the Speaker signs the Senate bills, the pro tem signs the House bills, and they send it back again, mm-hmm. and then the bodies take those bills that are you know, printed in the final form and signed by both presiding officers, and pretty much that day, they walk them over to the second floor to the governor's office and say, here you go. Here's Senate Bill X. Here's House Bill Y. And so then that that's where on the action for the bill, it'll say delivered to the governor. That's what that means, is that okay. the, 
the final version signed in technical session or in open session if they're still going uh, by both presiding officers uh, and then this gets delivered to the governor. The Constitution says that has to happen no later than May 30th because then they just have to be done with their work. It's kind of like last day of school. Mm-hmm. And they do what's called adjourning sine die. That means the session's over with. There can't be any more meetings or business done. It's all over with. And so that marks the timeline for the later actions. The governor gets 45 days for all those bills that kind of came to him towards the end of session, like within the last week or after session's over. All those bills that he gets, and that's usually almost all of them. There might be a super early bill that gets to him earlier. But all those bills, he's got 45 days from May 30th. So that's July 14th. And so you'll see the governor periodically, it seems like it's typically on like on a Friday, uh, maybe a Thursday, he'll sign a few bills. um, And that process kind of trickles along. What's been going along all this time is once the bill has passed both chambers, even before the final version is delivered to the governor, the agency kind of knows what the language is because, you know, all the various pieces are there on the, um, our public documents and they're on the websites. So you can kind of figure out what passed, even though you may not have the pretty truly agreed to version. And they'll be looking at that and analyzing, you know, how does this relate to, uh, the existing statutes? Does it create technical issues of some strange nature? Are there provisions within a bill? Some of these bills, you know, they start off as one thing and they end up as like 20 things at the end. Mm-hmm. Is there something in there that's that like the governor's office or an agency feels like this could really be a problem? Right. Sometimes a bill that has you know 19 perfectly good provisions from their perspective will get vetoed because there's one bad thing in there and they just can't on a bill. The governor has to sign or veto the whole thing. Budget's different. The Those are all House bills. House Bill 1, 2, 3. I think they went up to 20 this time. Um, or maybe it was just 19. Anyway, the governor does have line item veto power on the budget bill, so he can be highly selective in mm. how he tweaks those line by line. Uh, but on the regular bills, he's just got to either take it or leave it. And so sometimes something will get vetoed, even though the governor's like, I'm fine with this provision and this one and this one, but I can't sign that. And so then he'll say, you know, go send me a bill next year that doesn't have that in it or fix the problem with it. Um, You know, sometimes sometimes it's even been where the governor's office said, like, we kind of think this conflicts with federal law. There's been bills relating to how property related to mining activity gets handled in terms of like school finance. And there were, there were provisions in the federal law that had some specifications. So one time a bill got vetoed because it was perceived to be out of compliance there. So there's a lot of different aspects that the agencies look at, but obviously, you know, there's also a political side to it. You know, the governor may feel like, you know, something is so important in terms of, you know, the piece that really was the motivation for the bill, that he may decide to go ahead and sign it anyway, even if there's some problems in the other area, and then you either recommend 
Or in the, you know, the more extreme cases, the governor does have, obviously, the power to call the legislature back into what's known technically as an extraordinary session, although we normally we call them special sessions, but the okay. Constitution refers to them as extraordinary sessions. And so he can say, um, I want you, you know, this is a problem, you know, maybe I had to veto this bill because you didn't do it right. And uh, this is an important issue. I want you to fix it. And really, we don't want to wait around until next session and you guys sending me something next summer. We want something in place as soon as possible. And he'll consider calling a special session. That typically will correspond with the veto session. So if you look at that sequence again, May 30th is when he has to get all the bills July 14th is the last day that he can act on them. And then August 28th is 45 days after that, so 90 days after May 30th. That's the normal effective date. And then for the bills that he vetoes by July 14th, the legislature has to come back in in the middle of September, and they have to convene in what's known as a veto session. Sometimes there's not much to do. There will typically be at least some line item vetoes and budget bills. There might be a couple other bills that get vetoed. Um, And since they're in town, and if there's agreement on something, they can move a single bill on a targeted topic pretty quickly, theoretically speaking, kind of within one week, uh, because it takes a minimum of three days per chamber with an overlap on the middle day to pass a bill if there's total agreement on it. So they can kind of move something, some little thing that that people agree on pretty quickly and wrap that together so they don't have to double up on the driving and the sessions. One other thing, one other nuance I want to mention that people might not be familiar with, if you're familiar with the federal process, the president has the power to veto, and under the U.S. Constitution, he has what's known as a pocket veto, which is he doesn't have to... He has to sign it for it to be considered passed into law. If he doesn't sign it within a certain period of time, it's as if he vetoed it. Mm. Missouri has the opposite logic for the governor. The governor has to veto it for it to be considered a veto. He has no oh. pocket veto. So like on July 14th, business day is over. Interesting. And he hasn't vetoed something and he didn't sign it. It's as if he signed it that day. Oh. Okay. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. And that's usually, that's rarely used. um, But it's like maybe the legislature passed a bill. It's so controversial and so divisive. He doesn't want to overtly tick off one half of the electorate by signing it. He doesn't want to overtly tick off the other half by vetoing it formally. And so he'll just kind of take the path of least political anguish and just let it go into effect saying, well, you know, I mean, this is what the legislature did. I guess I'm sort of okay with it, but I'm not the biggest cheerleader for it. So it's a, it's a, yeah. So that's an option for the governor to simply not sign it or, you know, if the clock ran out and, you know, you get to that last day and you're like, I don't, you know, I just don't, I don't want to spend the time, in the Oval Room, you know, signing the, the bill today, it just goes into effect. Interesting. Is there an example of, like, that you've seen that happen? That he doesn't sign it, but then it becomes effective? 
I think under Governor Jay Nixon, we might have had something that was kind of a hot button issue, probably relating to abortion rights. Right. I'm not remembering the specific thing, but there's been lots of kind of little as the state legislature was moving along in being more ever more restrictive, Mm -hmm. there were lots of little pieces there. And I think governor Nixon, who was trying to, you know, he was a democratic governor with a faced with a Republican legislature. He was trying to be perceived kind of as middle politically, not. Mm. And so that was a case where I think he, chose not to either veto or sign a bill because he thought that either one was kind of overtly antagonizing one or the other side of a highly polarized electorate. Okay, that makes sense. But it's not very common. Usually the governor will just kind of either do one or the other. This timeline that happens post-session. Yeah. Once new policy is implemented, school's pretty much already started. Right. And so that's always, you know, the legislature's thinking, oh my gosh, this is so important, right? So they're not really thinking practically about the fact that, oh yeah, technically speaking that, you know, they get out of session May 30th. Just over 30 days later, the f- official school year starts on July 1. And then school starts and they've actually mandated that it can't start any earlier than two weeks before Labor Day. But it's usually, so you're talking the Final third of August is typically going to be that first day of school. Yes. Which is often right before the normal effective date, which is always, it's always August 28th, exactly 90 days after May 30th. And so sometimes, you know, if they're just thinking, oh, well, you know, here's a new law, unless they say otherwise, and it has a normal effective date, it's going to go into effect like, you know, three, four, five days after the school year starts. Um, some, so sometimes, you know, we'll make sure they think about that on, you know, big enough things. We'll say, let's do a de- what's called a delayed effective date. Yeah. Um, so they can, that's easier to do in that you can kind of implicit, you don't have to have an emergency clause. The emergency clause is if you're in a big hurry. And you want it to happen before August 28th, which is, you know, sometimes you want to do something. And in that case, maybe you're going to try to get it to become law July 1st. Mm-hmm. Um, that sometimes happens. For example, let's say it has to do with like uh, contracts or retirements, you know, teacher contracts, school, you know, teacher retirements, where those are typically going to have like a July 1, June 30th thing. Uh, but let's say it's a new thing and the schools are going to need a little prep time to kind of like figure out how to implement it. Then you're more likely to do a delayed effective date to the following July 1st. So, you know, the bill passes, it would normally go into effect August 28th, right? When a school year has started, you just postpone it and you can do that through a separate enacting clause at the end, or you can kind of just go in, and kind of do it implicitly uh, by putting it into the section of law and say on and after, you know, for school years starting on and after July 1 and put it a year or two out. And then because you're not going ahead of August 28th, that doesn't take a two-thirds majority. That doesn't take an emergency clause. But if you want to do it early, before August 28th, you got to have the emergency clause, which means two-thirds of the 
number of people who are supposed to be in each chamber, even if you have vacancies, doesn't matter. You got to have 23 and you got to have 109 senators and reps. Mm-hmm. Got to have them vote for the emergency clause. And it'll have to say something like, you know, because of the immediate need to, you know, basically promote the public health and welfare and safety or some, you know, something good sounding like that. We've got to do this early. And then the governor has to sign it by the time you want it to happen, because you, it can't be in effect, even if they have an emergency clause, until the governor signs it. And so it'll typically say something like it'll go into effect, you know, basically July 1st or whenever the governor signs it, whichever occurs later, because he could wait until July 14th. Right. And as an example, every year you got your budget bills. And you want those to run July 1 to June 30th. And so uh, you always want the uh, governor to sign those or do his line item vetoes by July 1st. And generally he will. Um, Those actually don't have to have an emergency clause because they're budget bills. They're separate under the Constitution. They're essentially automatically have an emergency clause um, because they are only one year at a time for that specified time. Hmm. Um, whereas let's say it's a school retirement thing. You could have the emergency clause, but if he doesn't sign it until after July 1st, it would get awkward because it wouldn't have been in effect until say July 10th or whatever, whenever he signs it. So my understanding of how bills become statute law the next step, from my understanding, is in rules and regulations need to be made. Correct. Well, actually, the next step is going to be so. There's a since 1945, we've had a committee on legislative research. Okay. Which is a joint committee of the House and Senate, and under their purview is the Legislative Research Office, and it also houses a statutory provision called the reviser of statutes. And so somebody has the duty to be, they're, they're a state worker, they work for the legislature, and they're one of their official title is they're the reviser of statutes. And they're, they and whoever they have working for them to do this work, they then have to figure out how do we incorporate session laws that have been passed and signed or overridden, like if the governor vetoed it, the ones that are going to become law, that office has the obligation to incorporate into the publication of the statutes of Missouri those new enactments. And there's, there's various steps to that because one step is you have to show, you like how take figure out the way that the statute actually reads, because the bill is, if it's amending existing law, it'll have like, you know, the underlining and the bracketing and all that stuff. And so the reviser has to then go in and kind of figure out, okay, here's all all the surgery they did, adding and deleting. Mm -hmm. What does the law now read like? And they produce that. Okay. Okay. And back in the day, the primary thing that was the mechanism was they would publish a volume of statutes, and then every year there would be like what we would call the supplement, and that would show the new sections revised by bills. 
Nowadays, most people don't really bother with the printed thing anymore. Very few people buy the books. Uh, So people pretty much go by what's on the website. And again, this is the reviser of statutes has the authority to do this work and to maintain that official website. If you've ever gone and looked at Missouri revised statutes, that's the reviser of statutes work there. Okay. Okay. And, And that work isn't always trivial because the legislature might in multiple bills pass changes to the same section, right? Mm -hmm. And they might be doing different things. So then you have, then the reviser has to use his or her judgment to say, are these compatible? If they're compatible, then the reviser will merge the multiply enacted sections into into one version of statute that becomes official. Sometimes they're not compatible. There is no good, you know, in the judgment of the reviser of statute, and he or she has, in my experience, done a brilliant job of, of doing this. Yeah. Um, they figure out, logically, these two don't really fit together. You can't make the sense of it written this way and this way and put it in one document. In that case, they'll actually print both versions, like the, the, the final law that that bill would create. Whoa. And and that's an un, that's an undesirable situation because now you've essentially got a conflict in the law. It's not a good thing. Wow. You know, the, law, the law should be clear, and so that is essentially viewed as a problem to be fixed because you don't really know which you know if they if they conflict. I mean, you could an agency might feel like, well, I have to do this, but then I have to do that, and those are I can't do both of those things because they are at odds with one another. And when does that happen? Is that after like after the 28th or is that after the 14th? That'll be July 14th. It'll be no later than July 14th. The reviser will know how to deal with all the bills that have not been vetoed. So okay. like this month in June, the reviser is looking at all the bills that are going to the desk. Yeah, the, 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 like seeing what is potential. Mm-hmm. They, for sure, that stuff has to, for the bills that did not get vetoed. So they're going to have a normal effective mm-hmm. date of August twenty eighth, or especially in the case if there, there's an emergency clause, that's got to you know if that bill goes into effect on July first, it needs to be resolved by the reviser of statutes by that time okay. because it's got to be up yeah got to be up by the 28th that's their that's their due date well or, or, or by if if there's an emergency clause it would need to be earlier it oh, would well, need right, to, right, right. yeah whenever that date is stated at the latest when it's going to go into effect okay but for the August 28th, August 28th is good enough that just blew my mind in terms of how this all actually starts to hit rubber to the road these yeah. bills then they have to go through the governor then they then before they even can get to rules and regulations at the secretary of state correct yeah oh whoa now we talked about the process we talked about um the reviser we talked about rules and regulations um what else do we need to know about what happens after session uh let's see I mean, I think we, you know, from the procedural point of view, I think we've covered most of it. Really, the only thing we didn't 
spell out there was, yes, the legislature comes back in a veto session. Mm. If the governor chose to veto something and the legislators uh, vote, they have an opportunity and essentially a requirement. If you look at the Constitution, it actually kind of says, you shall vote on an override attempt. Now, obviously, it doesn't tell them which way to vote. But if if it gets two-thirds or more in both chambers— and it, go, it starts wherever the bill started and goes mm-hmm. to the other one. If you know, if it's our House bill, the House gets to vote on it. If they vote two-thirds to override the veto, then it goes to the Senate. And under the Constitution, they are supposed to. This has been a matter of controversy where they kind of like to say, eh, we're just not going to vote on it. If you read the Constitution, you, they probably ought to go ahead and have a vote because mm-hmm. the language in the Constitution kind of says, you know, it shall be entered and then yeas and nays shall be taken. So... Um, anyway, if it passes both a motion to override both on that bill, uh, by two thirds, then it's as if it were, it's, you know, it becomes effective Mm -hmm. and there's a, there's a stipulation there. Obviously now you're talking probably September 15th or so that obviously it can't have gone into effect on August 28th. Right. So basically once that's done, then I think it's another 30 days, mm-hmm. and, and then it becomes law. And so okay. that's that extra process. You tend not to see high-profile stuff on, go, on uh, veto overrides when you have the same party, governor, and control of both chambers. Mm-hmm. Usually they kind of sort stuff out to where they don't, you know, because they don't really want high-profile conflict within the party, so to speak. Right. Because the governor is essentially the leader of your state party. Okay. Okay. Whereas, you know, when we had the Republican-controlled legislators and a Democratic governor, Jay Nixon, there was a lot more tension about sending him stuff, that, you know, making him veto it and then seeing if they could override. So that's... That's much more a symptom of a divided government where you have one chamber, where both chambers controlled by one party and a governor of the opposite party. If you could give Missouri session, Missouri legislative process a hashtag, what hashtag would it be? Uh, I wish people could see the look on your face (laughs) (laughs) when you're like, what? I, I'm going to tell you, I have never contemplated that question before. Oh, my gosh. Then I'm so glad I asked it. Hmm. And I bet you that no one has ever really pondered that before. Like most legislative processes, ours is designed to, you know, government in general tends to be slow and reactive. Hmm. And that's actually not bad, right? That's There you go. I, I actually might be ha- that's might might be it right there. Hashtag slow and reactive. Hmm. Because yeah, government tends to be that way. Partly there's like a filtering. You don't want, you know, if you think about what we were just talking about with the teachers saying, "Oh my gosh, they you know all these new things." Yeah, a government, a legislature that is slow and reactive, filters and doesn't put onto, you know, teachers and other government entities and public en- entities um, too many new things at once. 
Mm. to where you can't, you know, just can't implement stuff. So it sounds maybe kind of pejorative in a sense to, you know, hashtag slow and reactive, but there's, you know, there's a, there's some degree of wisdom that almost all bills die. Mm -hmm. And there's some degree of wisdom that a government's policies are slow and reactive. The dark side can be if it's so slow, like if you look at say Congress, they start to have like zero ability on, there are certain areas where they just can't do anything. They're so gridlocked Hmm. at that point. It, when something becomes so utterly responsive, unresponsive to reality, you get these huge gaps where you're kind of limping along with inadequate or outdated policies. So what you want, I think probably in the, in the grand scheme of things is something that is slow and reactive, but there's kind of a steady march Mm -hmm. of, of appropriate responses. I like to talk to legislators about hitting a single. Mm Mm-hmm. Because, you know, rather than, you know, trying to, you know, swing for the fences with something huge and, you know, and you mm-hmm. whiff and then, you know, we get nothing year after year after year, yeah. you try something, you hit a single, you do a little something, you let the process, you know, you becomes law, there's maybe some funding or budgeting stuff related to it, there's maybe rulemaking related with it, you see how it goes and then, like, you know, are we in the, headed in the right direction? Okay, we'll go, you know, and, and do we need to do a little bit more? So, you know, you can kind of hopefully have that degree of steady, measured um, adjustments or progress. That's really kind of what you can hope for, frankly, from government, is that it's kind of staying not too far behind the current realities. Because, you know, there's a lag time to all the little parts of it. But if people are inside or paying attention and trying to respond, they never get too far out of touch with reality. That's what you hope. We'll just do a quick preview of the next episode where we're probably going to be looking at retirement. Okay. Well, so there's provisions that we have been basically supporting and trying to get done for a number of years that are now delivered to the governor in two different bills. Senate Bill 20 and Senate Bill 75 both have the new, the restoring essentially the 2.55% benefit factor. It used to be in a law for 31 plus. Uh, It went away because it got blocked by a senator. And then it took a while to get it back. Uh, Mm -hmm. And it's now for 32 or more years of service credit. Um, And so we'll be looking at the possibility that that goes into effect, it doesn't have an emergency clause, so it won't kind of work for folks who take a normal retirement uh, effective July 1st of this year that have to either delay it or um, wait another year. Uh, but then there's also upgrades on the what we call the bus driver provision, so PSRS retirees working in non-teacher certificate positions where you can earn not just 15000 but it's going to be like 28249 uh, for next year. That one will essentially work for folks next year. Um, there's also the critical shortage option that's been around for a while, and it's been bumped up from two to a maximum of four years for an individual to serve in a critical shortage position, get paid, and still keep their PSRS pension. And then 
There was a provision put in about speech implementers, which basically DESIC had kind of changed the certification and the job descriptions in a way that was going to take some folks who'd been doing work as speech implementers for a while as a PSRS person, and it was going to dump them in the last parts of their career into peers. And that's kind of awkward uh, in terms of retirement and finance. And so Mm -hmm. uh, Rusty Black and Kathy Steinhoff worked to get language put in there to just kind of a Band-Aid for those folks. Uh, in the long run, those folks will move over to the speech language pathologies ass- assistant stuff or speech language assistant stuff uh, and be in peers. But for the kind of the legacy or the more experienced folks, well, we're not forcing them to change retirement systems. Right. And then there's the pop-up provision for domestic partners that's in 75 but not in 20. So okay. if you sign 75, and that'll that's kind of treating divorce-like death mm-hmm. for the pop-up provision if you've chosen a reduced benefit so that your spouse has a uh, survivor benefit. And we're just providing the same sort of structure for the same-sex domestic partners that we already have for other couples. Nice. All right. And that's going to be decided based on mm-hmm. what? Uh, what the governor signs and he has these are normal effective date all the way across the board he has till july 14th anyway and then they would potentially go into effect august 28th got it all right and we'll chat about that next month to get more of what's been signed so post july 14th okay thanks Otto. you're welcome (laughs) 